At the start, I thought it would take me maybe three to five years. And then after, as I got into the fourth year, I really started to believe I would never finish it before (laughs) I died. (laughs) Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 165. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, I want to make sure you know about the new reading challenge on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, where we're entering our ninth year of helping readers get more out of their reading lives. The goal of the 2019 reading challenge is to help you get more out of your reading life in 2019. We can help. Visit my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, at modernmrsdarcy.com to get the details. Participants are reading 12 books across 10 categories that were specifically chosen to give you the best possible reading experience. And we've created free, downloadable tools for you that are pretty, practical, and all kinds of motivating. We hope you'll join us for our 2019 challenge. Sign up and get your free challenge kit at modernmrsdarcy.com. To go straight to the page, it's modernmrsdarcy.com slash reading dash challenge. Challenge 2019. That's a little awkward, but I think you can do it. ModernMrsDarcy.com slash reading dash challenge dash 2019. Happy reading, everyone. Readers, welcome to 2019. If you entered the new year dreaming of a fresh approach to your reading life, whether the goal is tackling the classics, beating your Goodreads challenge, or simply finding more joy in your reading life, today's guest, Jim Mustick, has decades of wisdom to help kick off your best reading year ever. Jim and I got to chat this fall and then meet in person at the Kentucky Book Festival, where we discussed the importance of reading and shared some of our favorite books with the audience, and it was such a good time. Jim is the author of the new book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, which is a wonderful addition to any book lover's shelves and one I've thoroughly enjoyed perusing myself. Today, Jim and I chat about his history as a reader and the inspiration and long road to publication for 1,000 Books and why reading those 1,000 books might not be as daunting as it first sounds. We're are also putting Jim in the hot seat today. I share three of my favorite books, and then Jim graciously recommends which of those thousand books he thinks I should prioritize this year. It's so much fun, and I can't wait for you to listen. Let's get to it. Jim, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to chat books with a fellow book lover, as always. And I'm so glad our paths have crossed this fall when you were on the road promoting 1,000 books to read before you die. And I was talking, I'd rather be reading. It's good to be back together again. It sure is. Jim, let's just jump right in and talk about your book. Your new release from this fall is called 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. It is a doorstop of a volume, and I mean that in the most affectionate sense. (laughs) Thank you. Around here, we talk about how when you get more out of your reading life, you get more out of the rest of your life as well. And you make a comment in your introduction at the beginning where you do say that a thousand books is a life-changing list and how that sounds grandiose, yet it's very true. Can you tell me a little about that? For me, reading is the way we keep the longest ongoing conversation we have interesting. And that conversation is the conversation we have with ourselves in our own head. And reading is a way we encourage what's already in our hearts and minds uh, in a way that I think expands and enhances our lives in a way that 
we can't quite do in the rest of our busy days. So kind of retreating into the quiet company of a book uh, allows us to talk to parts of ourselves that we don't engage or we don't get to interact with in the rest of our lives. And that's how, for me, reading just about anything, but reading books especially that are congenial to our interests, it's like nourishment. When we eat, we feel better and we need the fuel that food provides. The same thing is true of our hearts and minds and, and books are the food for our hearts and minds. Yes. And to expand on the food metaphor, I love the way you put it in your introduction that your philosophy here is really reflected in the books you chose for your 1000 books. But you said that we eat for pleasure as well as nourishment and indulgence as much as education and sometimes for transcendence too. Yeah. And I I think we, you know, we read the way that we eat. So we'd be happy with a, a hot dog one day and the next day we might want sushi and we go back and forth between uh, fancy foods and comfort foods. And I think we read the same way. Well, when I first flipped through the volume to see what books you chose, some of them surprised me. I was delighted to see all six Jane Austen novels there, Plato and Sophocles and so much of the great Western canon that you would expect in a book like this. But there's also Make Way for Ducklings and Charlotte's Web and Into Thin Air and The Hunt for Red October and the 9-11 Commission Report. So I was very curious about your philosophy of choosing these books. But then when I discovered it, it all made sense. It took me a long time to figure out how to approach this book. I mean, I spent 14 years writing it, so it was a a long time in the work. But even getting my head around how to organize it, uh, I spent a lot of time on. And I finally decided I would give myself the framework of a bookstore in which I could have only a thousand books, but in which I wanted to be able to have something for every kind of reader, something to go back to our food metaphor that spoke to every kind of reading appetite. So whether someone was looking to explore the great works of the Western canon, or was looking for a thriller to read on a plane, or was looking for picture books to share with their children or grandchildren, I wanted to have that. Because that conversation with readers is what's central to me in all of this. For many years, I ran a book catalog, which I started in 1986, called The Common Reader. And one of the great joys of that was the correspondence we'd have with our customers. We'd used to get, in the early days, actual letters. It was even before email, and then email came in. And I still have eight filing cabinets in my basement filled with people commenting on books that they discovered in our catalog, and even more importantly, recommending books to us, advocating for books that they loved. And that just expanded my horizons enormously. And many of those books made their way into this one. Now, you've said this book was 14 years in the making, but just how long have you been professionally discussing and writing about books now? Oh, nearly four decades. <laughs> so for a long time, you know, before I even started this book, and I ran the Common Reader catalog for two decades, and that was every day writing about books in a tone that I hoped was congenial and inviting to other readers. So I had done a lot of uh, training, if you will, before I started on A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die. For those readers who haven't been on the planet for four decades, is there any place where they can go and get a taste of what it was like to get the Common Reader catalog? No. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, it's something that now that I've finished the book, you know, considering how we might do that, because on the the book tour for the past two and a half months, I've been traveling across the country. Everywhere I go, there's someone, if not several people who remember the catalog with great fondness, which is very gratifying to me, and leads me to believe that there's still 
uh, an interested audience in the kinds of thing we did. And that audience, I'm sure, is very much your own, you know, in the work that you do with What Should I Read Next and on your website. It's the same kind of inviting conversation about books that readers love. Well, is the tone that we'll find in your descriptions in A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die similar to the kind of content you would have shared in A Common Reader? Well, the book choices are certainly similar. And the kind of tone in some degree is similar. A Common Reader was much more personal because it was much more of the moment. Uh, What's not in the book, but what was very much a part of A Common Reader uh, would be, I got a letter from so-and-so in Nashville, Tennessee, about this book I had never heard of. And then I described finding the book and maybe even where I read it. I sat down on a Sunday afternoon under a tree. So there was much more kind of contextual uh, writing about the reading in the catalog than there is in the book. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. That sounds like a blog, actually, Jim. Yes. Well, it was, you know, as I, as I, as I like to say, we, we founded this. It was a blog. Uh, and we built this community of a couple hundred thousand readers. But all of this was uh, before the internet. For 1,000 books, did you have any idea when you began that this would be a 14-year project? No. Um, at the start, I thought it would take me maybe three to five years. And then after, as I got into the fourth year, I really started to believe I would never finish it before I died. <laughs> because it was, in, in writing it, it was really like having the, the longest homework assignment of, of all time. And writing, the book consists, for, the, for your listeners who haven't seen it, there's actually a thousand brief essays about each of the titles that I've chosen. And writing them was a lot of work. When I was writing in the middle of that 14-year period, Let's say I had done 300 essays so far, and if I had a really good month, uh, I might write another 30 or 40 essays. But to go from number 300 to 340, there was still so much more to go that it, it was kind of daunting. But once I got past about 800, it was kind of downhill, and that kind of gave me a burst <laughs> of energy. Did you finalize the list before you started writing, or was it constantly in flux for 14 years? It was constantly in flux. But I did have, not too far along into the project, I had six or 700 titles that I knew I was going to do. And then I had a list of about another 1,000 titles from which to choose the next 400. And as I got closer to the end, I tried to make sure I had the right balance and mix to speak to readers of, as I said before, every appetite. So there was juggling up to the last minute. There were new books being published. Uh, there were new conversations I was having with people. I say, you know, in the introduction to the book, uh, that once people know you are writing a book called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, you can never enjoy a dinner party in quite the way you did before. <laughs> because every reader wants to talk about it, what's in it, what's not in it, and to tell you their favorites. And I was continued to discover books that way right up to the end. When you discovered these books, would you need to read them to decide whether or not you might want to further consider them for inclusion? Absolutely. There were some books where I, I've been selling books for, as I said, for four decades. So I'm familiar with most titles that would come up, but I'll give you an example. It's really one of, one of my favorite experiences related to the book. One evening, my wife and I were having dinner with some friends and I was talking to the woman who was sitting next to me about travel books and specifically about travel books about Italy. She said, you know what the best travel book about Italy is? I'm making the list in my head of all the books I knew as a bookseller, and I'm sure it was going to be one of those. 
And she told me a book that not only hadn't I read, I had never heard of the book or the author. So when I got home, I found a copy. It wasn't particularly easy to find. And I read it. And it is, in fact, the best travel book about Italy I've ever read now. And it's in the book, in my in a thousand books. It's called The Surprise of Cremona by a woman named Edith Templeton. And it's about her travels in Italy in the 1950s as a woman traveling alone. And she goes to all the smaller cities. So not Rome and Venice and Florence, but Cremona, Urbino, Ravenna. And her attention to Everything she sees, from art to historical monuments to food to people's faces, is remarkable. And she's a a keen writer, kind of dry and acerbic sense of humor that's just wonderful. So that's a book I discovered in that way. And it's it's one of many, but that one was one that not only, you know, was it to the side of my radar, it wasn't even uh, in view to me. I don't know that book, Jim. Very few people do. In fact, I was doing an event in Powell's the great bookstore in Portland, Mm -hmm. Oregon. And someone in the audience asked me, all the books in your book, will I find them in Powell's? And I said, probably. I said, wait a minute, except for one. (laughs) I had one of the booksellers go to the computer and look it up, and they didn't have a copy of this book either. But I highly recommend it. Edith Templeton, The Surprise of Cremona. If you will allow me, I'm going to just read you a couple of sentences from it. Oh, yes, please. It'll give you an example of of why I was so taken with the book. She's in a restaurant by herself. She's ordered an artichoke, and she's eating the artichoke. Now I'm quoting from the book. It has a melancholy flavor, suggestive of mold and dust, and of old books rotting away unread in the damp baronial libraries of old country manners. He who does not take the time to conquer the artichoke by stages does not deserve to penetrate to its heart. There are no shortcuts in life to anything, least of all to the artichoke. (laughs) The book is filled with paragraphs like that, that uh, I just fell in love with it. So I highly recommend it. What were some other late additions to the collection? Well, the most recent book in it was published in 2017. And before I talk about that, I should say that chronologically speaking, the book ranges from uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first recorded human story, recorded on tablets in Babylon and 4,000 years ago. And the most recent book is a book called Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology by Ellen Ullman, which was just published in 2017. And that's the most recent book uh, in a thousand books. And when I read it, I had to get it in. It was, you know, the last one I wrote up for the book, I wrote the essay about. And Ellen Ullman is a terrific writer. Her original career was as a software coder in Silicon Valley, in the early days of Silicon Valley, when there were very few women in that role. And in 1998 or so, she wrote a book called Close to the Machine, which really captures the mind and passions of a programmer as no other book. It's become something of a cult classic. And she went on then to write two novels, one called By Blood, and the other called The Bug. And in 2017, she released this book of essays called Life in Code, which is about her experiences in technology, but more importantly, about the world that technology has made and how we live in it. They're personal essays. It's not a dry uh, sociological study. It's all about changes she, she's, she sees in her neighborhood and so on. And she's just a wonderful writer. I, I think I say in the book, that if Virginia Woolf had written a laptop of one's own, it would have been a book like this. And so 
that's one that got in just at the at the end as I was finishing up. Were there any books that it just really hurt you to leave out? All the time. I, you know, I, I look around even my home office here or the bookshelves we have in the living room and there are books that jump out at me and I can't quite remember why they didn't make the cut. I was just exchanging text with a friend of mine who's the head of an independent school here in Connecticut where I live about a book he was reading. And I recommended another book by the author to him. And then I recommended a third book by somebody else. And he texted me back and said, I looked in your book and they're not there. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) So all the time there are books that aren't there. And so that was specifically about the poems of Mary Oliver, which I love. I didn't manage to write about for the book. There's always new things coming up. And there's one I found, actually, that you might be interested in, because I believe from one of your recent posts, you're traveling to Scotland soon. Do I have that right? Yes, I am. Now, do you know a book called Memoirs of a Highland Lady? No. Well, this is a book which almost made the cut. And in fact, I wrote uh, an essay about it, but I didn't quite make it in the end. It's by a woman named Elizabeth Grant, who lived at a manor called uh, Rafi Murchis. And it was written in the 19th century. And her memoirs, they are like, uh, if you can imagine a journal written by a real life Jane Austen heroine or protagonist, that's what this book is like. I think you would love it. And if you're going to Scotland, I recommend you pick it up either before you go or when you get back, because I think you'll find it terrifically entertaining and appealing in all the ways. There's a woman who is self-possessed who comments upon the social uh, world that she lives in, on family, on the conventions of her time in a way that's intensely literate, but deeply engaging. And it's, it's like being in an Austin novel for me. So you might want to check it out. I find that description very persuasive. <laughs> okay. When you read it, you can write me and say, why didn't you put this in the book? You know, a thousand seemed like a lot for many years, and now it seems like too few by several multiples. You mentioned in your introduction that there were some authors that you love so much that you hoped you might usher them in without their credentials being subject to too much scrutiny. <laughs> Who did you have in mind, Jim? Well, there's, you know, there's probably a lot in here, but there are particularly for me, I was a great fan, I still am, of uh, Norman Mailer, because when I read his books in college, his great works of journalism, like The Armies of the Night and Miami and the Siege of Chicago, there was an immediacy to them and a kind of energy to the writing that really taught me so much about how to write. I believe the, the Armies of the Night, for instance, is in fact a great book, but it's really in here because it spoke to me so uh, personally as an aspiring writer. Uh, and that's why I wanted to write about it and include it. Um, there's other books like the novels of uh, Rex Stout, the mystery novels. He has a great detective called Nero Wolf, And Uh, Nero Wolf is uh, a very large man who lives in this brownstone on 35th Street in New York. He raises orchids up on the top floor of the house. He has a personal chef, so there's lots of stuff about food in the books. And then he has an assistant named Archie Goodwin who narrates the books. And he's kind of like the, you know, the Philip Marlowe detective who goes out and handles all the action and he reports back to Wolf. In any case, there's about 40 of these books. They were written from the mid-1930s to the early 1970s. And I just love them. I read them over and over again when I just want to read. I can never remember who done it, And I just love the character so much. This real comfort reading for me. And as I said before, that's part of 
you know, what a reading life is. So that's another example. So you're saying that if there were a thousand books that you thought you might include in addition to the thousand you actually did, the ones you personally loved made the cut. Much of the time. Yes, exactly. That's the author's prerogative. Yes. Jim, I went through your checklist and I loved that you had not only the short reading list in the back, like 12 books to read before you're 12, which was a lot of fun. And then some organized by theme and content. And isn't there a soul food list? I thought that was fun. But I like that there was a checklist of the 1000 books, which actually takes quite a mm-hmm. bit of time to go through. But I did it and I enjoyed checking yeah. them off with my pencil. <laughs> I was really proud of myself for finally finally reading Kazuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day, I think four days before Ah. I went through your checklist. Oh, good. (laughs) That's a wonderful book. It is. And it's one I've been meaning to read for over a decade, possibly two if it's been out that long. It's one of those books that I knew had been life-changing for so many readers that I knew was a great work of literature. And I just hadn't gotten around to because it would always be there. And I, I don't know what gave me the kick in the pants, but I found so many of those titles going through your list. So I did go through, I checked them off. I have read 168. Do you talk to a lot of readers who feel compelled to, um, first of all, go through and count up their number, but then do you find that people really want to finish your checklist after seeing it? Well, I think people initially have uh, that impulse and they certainly want to uh, open the book and see if their favorites are in there, first of all. And then they go through the checklist to see what they've read. There is a certain type of person who says that he or she will embark upon reading all of them. I, I try to recommend a different path to the book, which is really to open it anywhere and read around till you find something that's so compelling, you want to read that book. Go from there. Because in the book, there's the thousand essays, but each essay has a set of endnotes attached to it that recommends other books by the same author or on the same subject or books to try if you like this one. And so I don't mean this list to be a kind of prescriptive course, like, you know, a workout program that you have to get through. To me, this is really much more like a menu. Again, to go back to our our food analogies, you open it up as you would in a menu in a restaurant. You find something that appeals to what your appetite is that day and go for that. It's meant to be a kind of encouragement to the impulse to read generally rather than specifically to help you find something that will uh, serve that impulse well. I like the way you put that. I put together a very different kind of list every summer on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. I do a summer reading guide and it usually has 25 to 30 titles and they're all published that year. So they haven't had the opportunity to stand the test of time. Although, of course, Mm -hmm. some I say, like, I think people are still going to be reading this in 20 years. And some I say, this is just good fun. Don't expect to find it in the bookstore in two years. But there are so many people every year, and I imagine a good percentage of them are what should I read next listeners. So hello, readers, who take it on as their mission to complete the summer reading guide. And part of me thinks like, oh, how fun, like readers love a challenge. But part of me thinks like, oh, I don't know. I tried, I tried really hard to choose books that would appeal to all kinds of readers on the list, not all readers. Yes, exactly. It makes me nervous to think that there are other ways they might more beneficially spend their reading time. I think there are some people who, and maybe this is an outgrowth of the way literature is taught or treated in schools from our earliest days, 
a kind of relationship with reading where it's work. It's like working out or something. And they don't have a kind of more organic and natural relationship to just picking up a book and reading at whim. There's a great quote from the American poet Randall Jarrell, which is, read at whim, exclamation point, read at whim, (laughs) which I have at the end of the end of the introduction and that's more the spirit i which people in which i think people should pursue their reading lives because they'll find things that that speak to them and the more uh they make it uh, just a part of their lives to uh pick up a book and and see what it's about the richer their reading lives will be and the richer the rest of their lives will be which is one reason i know we talked about it when we saw each other in lexington Audiobooks are so great because it opens up all kinds of time for reading when you're in the car, for instance, or when you're cooking or when you're taking the dog for a walk. That's available reading time. And you can you can just entwine reading in the fabric of your life in a, in a larger way. I think you and I, I, I can tell you, you are like me in this. It's what we do. You know, we can't get through a day without doing that. But for other people who are looking to, who aspire to read a little bit more, they should be easier on themselves than giving themselves tasks. <laughs> well, I think there are certain kinds of people and readers who really embrace the challenge, who get excited when faced with a checklist and who love the idea of conquering a list of 1000 books. So even if they're not conquering your list of 1000 books, I think something that's really appealing in that inherent challenge is that 1000 is unquestionably a big number. Yes. It doesn't sound doable <laughs> for a lot of people. Jim, I went through your checklist and I'd read 168. I decided not to count the ones that I knew that I had actually read in school, but had zero recollection of what the contents might have been. <laughs> I didn't count those. Mm-hmm. But if I knew I'd read it, like as a sophomore in high school, I did remember it. I'd still count it, even though I was 15. If I had been able to count all the good books that I had purchased in beautiful editions that are on my shelves right now, or worse, that I had checked out of the library and returned unread, I think I might've been able to double my tally. (laughs) Well, that kind of aspiration is really part of reading. I have books on my shelf that I bought 30 years ago, which I just actually got around to reading this year. And having them around as part of the kind of furnishings of my life has been wonderful and the spirit finally moved me and I, and I got to them. So I think we should cut ourselves a little <laughs> slack in, in, uh, in how we approach our reading life. Agreed. And yet it was a good reminder to me to go through your checklist to go like, oh, there are so many books here that I know I want to read, but there's no rush. There's, there's no time pressure. So I keep putting them off. And it was a reminder like, hey, these are generally recognized to be worthwhile. Maybe you should actually read them, Anne. Well, I'm sure you'll get to the ones you need to soon enough. Let's talk about getting to them. I think for a lot of readers, especially if they've read, well, 16.8% of your list, I can do that math, might think, oh my goodness, when am I going to make time to read 800 books? What's your answer to that, Jim? My answer to that is make time to read the next one. Find one that appeals to you. And then the next one after that, it's, it's like, one book at a time, you know, as so many of us live one day at a time, because otherwise the weight of all the books you're not reading kind of pushes down the pleasure of the one you can read at this moment. And so my answer to it is to just find the one, and then that will lead you to the next one. That one will lead you to the next one and just keep at it. And everything will add up 
uh, and accumulate into a nice list. I came across a quote once in a book, if you can believe it. It might have been Richard Foster, but he said that people in general tend to vastly overestimate what they can accomplish. And he wasn't just talking about reading, but they overestimate what they can accomplish in one year. But hugely underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 because our minds just don't generally work that way unless we push them to do so. And I think that really applies to the reading life. When I think about reading a thousand books, I think that is a lot of books and that's not something that I can tackle in a year. But I read a lot. I know many of our listeners do. And one book at a time, we could read your list five times over probably in the next few decades. Yeah, that perspective in that quote is very valuable for all of us to have in in whatever we're doing, that what we can do in a week may not seem like that much, but the weeks in the course of a year, we can do more. And as you said, if the perspective is one year versus 10, things accumulate. I think one of the goals in living is to make sure, and not just about reading, but in everything we do, that the good things, the things that we value the most, that are most meaningful to us, those are the things that our day-by-day lives are accumulating. So that when we look back after a year or after 10 years, we can be surprised and pleased by how much we've accomplished. I love your advice to take one book at a time. And also I find that when I'm rushing to get to the next book, because for whatever reason, whether it's on a project or on my reading list in general, if I'm in a rush, I can't enjoy the book that is actually in front of me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Jim, I'm hoping today you can help me pick my next few reads. Although I've got to say, Memoirs of a Highland Lady, I think belongs very high on my to-be-read list at the moment. Circumstances being what they are. I do think you'll love that one. So I wanted to make sure I told you about it. I, I am I am a little daunted by recommending <laughs> books to you, I must say, but I, I'm game. No, you're a pro. This is going to be fun. So I get to tell you three books I love. I will briefly go into one book I don't. And what I've been reading lately, and I'm hoping you can help me choose three books from 1,000 books I imagine they're already on my to-be-read list, but if they're not, I am here for it, like that Italian travel writing. Good. Well, go ahead. Tell me your three your three favorites and, um, and what you're reading now, and I'll see what I can do. All right. For the first book I love, I'm going to choose Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. And I think longtime podcast listeners may think I'm cheating by choosing Wallace Stegner because I've talked about crossing to safety a lot. And I know I've recommended Angle of Repose on the podcast, but something that jumped out at me as I was making a list of my personal favorites from your checklist was there are so many books in there that have something I really like in common. And that's, I love books with interesting narrative constructions and unusual structures. I really like that in a book. I don't like it to be gimmicky or show-offy, but if it's a little fresh and unusual and complex, I find that to be really satisfying. An Angle of Repose is one of those stories. Unlike Crossing to Safety, which is right at 300 pages, Angle of Repose is much fatter. It's not as fat as your book, but it's quite large, 600 pages maybe. <laughs> hmm I really like the narrative construct that Stegner invented to tell this story. So he has a historian who has troubles in his own personal life. So we have a story that operates on that level, what's happening right here, right now. But he's putting his historian skills to use to excavate the story of his grandparents. He's fascinated by his grandmother, a woman who came east to the American West, one of Stegner's big themes in the early 20th century. And he actually 
based this character, his grandmother, on a real historical figure. I didn't realize the first time I read the book that what he did with that historical figure was controversial because he took some of her actual letters, this historical artist, and just copied and pasted into the book. And I had no idea the first time I read. And so that caused a little bit of an uproar before my time. Because this was a Pulitzer winner, wasn't it? Well, yes. So he goes back and forth in time. He's reading his grandparents' letters and he's reconstructing what happened in their courtship and marriage. And his grandfather was an engineer in the mines in Colorado. And he knows that their journey was not smooth, but to find out why, he has to read between the lines and figure out what else was happening at the time. So you have two different storylines, several generations apart, and he manages to do so much in this space. You have a family saga, a story of the great American West, a story about marriage. It's all blanketed in this question of how do we relate to our history, both national and personal. I kind of feel like the ending is a cop-out. I don't love the ending, Jen, <laughs> but I do love the book. And it's one that I can keep coming back to and back to and notice new things each time. It's interesting the way there are some books in which the ending isn't satisfying, but we still love the book. You know, even going back to something like Great Expectations, which Dickens himself wasn't happy with the ending, so he wrote a new one. Uh, but we still have that attachment to the book that absorption and the rest of it has brought us. And it's interesting that I still do love Angle of Repose. Ooh, I love that title too. I love a good title. Yes. Because sometimes a bad ending can just make me just forget all about the book and wish I could have the time back I spent reading it. But I don't feel that way about Angle of Repose, even though, I mean, I don't know how he was going to end it otherwise, but I just felt like it was, I felt like he'd written himself into a corner. He didn't know how to get out. Mm -hmm. So that's a novel. The next two I chose were nonfiction, except they read very differently. The second one, I was surprised and absolutely delighted to find on your list, and that is Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman. Oh, I'm so glad you love that book as well. How did you find it? A reader, a common reader, suggested it to me. It was pretty close to when it had first come out, and uh, someone sent me a postcard, I think it was, saying, you have to look at this book by Alan Lightman. Lightman was a physicist at MIT at the time, I believe, and... Uh, and this is just a marvelous book. So yeah. tell me why oh, you love it. And he's a fascinating man, who a physicist Absolutely. and a writer. Oh, well, I remember just stumbling upon this when I was in high school, when it came out in 1993 and it caught my eye. I'm no scientist, liberal arts major right here, but I've always been interested in reading about quantum physics. <laughs> I remember spying this on the end cap at my now defunct local independent bookstore and picked it up and thought, what a concept, because I love books with an interesting concept. This is the structure that Lightman imagined for this book. It's 1905 and a very young patent clerk, Albert Einstein, is working on his paper on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. So he's making progress on his theory of relativity. And as he works on it, his work is bleeding into his dreams. So this book consists of 30 entirely fictional, short, poetic vignettes that describe what Einstein dreamed of that night. And I love that it's small enough to read in an afternoon, but it's easy to, you can leave it on your coffee table and just pick it up and open to one and read it and come back to it. It's so unusual. It's completely delightful. It's astoundingly creative. The different ways Lightman has Einstein imagine what time looks like and feels like and how it moves and how it affects us. It was such a surprise to me. And over the years, 
it's it's held up and withstood numerous rereadings. And I really respect that in a book. I share your enthusiasm for this book and especially what you said at the end there, that it holds up. And the fact that you can open it up uh, just about anywhere and be given something to ponder uh, about time or about light or about elements of physics, but they're not presented that way. They're just presented as wonderful imagery that leads us deeper into the, the natural world and into the, the world beyond that. So it's, it's a marvelous book. Yes, I admire the way that his writing is so playful, but it's also very thoughtful and grounded. And I really like having those two things together. Terrific. Another one that I shouldn't have been surprised to find, but it's not what I was expecting, was Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of Great American Cities. I love urban planning books. It's only in the past few years that I've really been able to begin to articulate why. I know that I am fascinated with the factors that affect our everyday life that many of us are completely blind to. So I love the way that someone like Jane Jacobs can say, oh, do you know why you like walking down that sidewalk? Well, there are 17 factors you have never considered, but they are all working. This isn't some kind of magic. There are... There are actual things at play that either someone planned or you've been lucky to coincidentally benefit from, but it's not a mystery. Let me show you how it works. I love to see how things are made, and I love the structures behind things. In The Death and Life of Great American Cities, she's talking about urban planning in general, but specifically New York City streets. So if you want a really nerdy, fun trip to New York, read this book first, and you can see you can see it lived out. Very well said. I also like, even if you're not a total urban planning nerd like I am, the way she points out the fabric of the places we inhabit and how so many things that we tend to think of as existing separately are actually really intricately connected. It's the kind of book that I'm glad you, you're highlighting it because it can it, it isn't might not naturally appeal to a lot of readers, but you've articulated exactly why it's so exciting and so much fun to read. Well, I think it sounds like a textbook, but if you're a human who lives in a world that has sidewalks sometimes, you're affected by the things she writes about. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Jim, I had a long list of things that I almost wanted to include here. I decided to go with the the structural. I love Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, so Half of a Yellow Sun was on my short list for you. The All uh-huh. of It was on my short list. How Buildings Learn, which I was very surprised to see here. Yes, that's a lo- that's a marvelous book uh, by Stuart Brand about how buildings change over time based on our use of them. And it's kind of similar to some of the things you said about how Jacobs writes about sidewalks. It's, it's in their use that buildings kind of assume their character over time. Uh, buildings are part of the fabric of our lives the same way sidewalks are, and we have to think about them in that way. I love that book. I just discovered that this year and picked it up from the library sometime this fall. Ah, I love Barbara Kingsolver, so I thought really hard about the Poisonwood Bible. I think everybody knows I love Jane Austen. I didn't need to put that in. <laughs> and Mary Carr's The Liars Club made my short list. Ooh, and Gilead. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. I don't want to go into detail about a book I don't like, because I feel like I've given you lots to work with. But I will say... I do have that completionist impulse in me, Jim. And I was thinking at a certain mm-hmm. point on your list, do I want to read these 1,000 books? <laughs> but I didn't make it very far. I got to the bees and I saw a Clockwork Orange and I went, no, no, I don't. That ah. book is not for me. Too much. It's a very harsh book. And I know it is for a reason. I understand this is the point. Yes. I also watched the movie in high school. 
that was enough for several lifetimes. Interestingly, the movie is different from from the book. The book, while the American edition from the English edition were slightly different in how they used the last chapter, but it is a kind of overpowering book in a way that can be engaging and invigorating, but also in some ways uh, repellent in the force of its violence and so on. So I can certainly understand that reaction. I love that you knew the difference between the American and British versions off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try, to, I, I try to remember what I, what I found out about each of these books as I wrote them, and that one is still in there. And then, you know, I just finished The Remains of the Day. Before I started flipping through your list, I happened to request another one you included from the library, and that's Iris Murdoch, The Sea, The Sea. And that would be my first oh. Iris Murdoch. Oh, Iris Murdoch, you will love, just based on everything you've said here and what I've read in your book and from listening to you on the podcast, I think Iris Murdoch is a writer for you, for sure. Oh, I'm happy to hear it. I think sometimes readers, and this definitely applies to me, they just need a nudge. They're thinking about reading something, mm-hmm. and they just need someone to say yes. Yes, I agree. And that's, you know, to me, part of what you do and part of what I try to do in the book is is to be uh, the nudge supplier. <laughs> so. I'm going to put that on my business card. Good. <laughs> All right, Jim. I shared Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner, Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman, and The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. What do you think I should read next? I'll give you three, and maybe there'll be a bonus one because I have a thousand to deal with here. (laughs) Thinking about Angle of Repose and its attentions to family and history and the landscape of the American West, I immediately think of a book by Ivan Doig, called This House of Sky. Uh, This was published in 1978. Doig went on to become a very accomplished novelist, but this was his first book, and it's a memoir of growing up in Montana, a memoir of his childhood. And when he wrote about how this book came about, he wrote the following. In the last year of the 1960s, when this country was going through convulsive self-questioning, I was, as usual, out of step, It was getting clearer and clearer to me what I was in life. I was a relic. And he goes on to describe a relic as something whose original cultural environment has disappeared. The story that he tells is is about growing up with his father and his maternal grandmother who raised him because his mother died when he was about six. So this book, This House of Sky, is the story of these three survivors and of the environment. It was the very hard scrabble world of Montana sheep ranching that shaped all of them and which each one of them outlasted. Uh, and it's a marvelous story, again, filled with the landscapes, but this gives you no idea of how beautiful it is. The writing is stunning. Uh, he was blessed, as his you know focus on the word relic indicates, with a gift for refreshing common experience and everyday struggle with the benediction of the right words. And so his book is about ranching, but it's about memory and family and all the ramifications of kinship and how all of that is related to history and the physical environment. So that's a marvelous book that I think you should take a look at. That sounds up my alley. And I know that several podcast guests with... Taste, I found, had a huge overlap with mine, have chosen Ivan Doig as a favorite. Ah, 
Well, this was his first book, and it's breathtaking and and absorbing, and has the richness of of character in place of a novel. It's a memoir, but highly rewarding. I'm looking forward to trying that. And then combining your enthusiasm for Einstein's dreams and the death and life of great American cities, I'm going to recommend a book by the Italian writer Italo Calvino called Invisible Cities. I've been meaning to read him, but I know very little about this book. Tell me more. It was published in Italy in 1972, and the English translation came out two years later. And it has a very playful, eccentric structure. It purports to be a record of conversations between Marco Polo, when he's traveling in the East, and Kublai Khan. And the traveler is describing to the great Khan the many extraordinary cities he has encountered in his wanderings. And it is filled with this kind of poetic and philosophical charm in the same way Einstein dreams is. But instead of quantum physics and light and time, Calvino was really writing about the spirits that move us, our aspirations and longings and apprehensions, our desires and fears, and how cities represent them. The book unfolds in brief descriptions, Marco Polo's descriptions of 55 fantastic cities, from one called Anastasia, which is a city which has concentric canals watering it and kites flying over it, to Zenobia, which, although set on dry terrain, stands on high pilings, and the houses are made of bamboo and zinc with platforms and balconies placed on stilts at various heights. As Polo describes these 50-odd cities, and the Khan is questioning him, not really believing what he's hearing, uh, you begin to realize that the cities that the author, Calvino, is conjuring are really emblems of the imagination, of memory and longing and expression and speculation and fancy. And each small scene is a confluence of insight and enchantment. And so it's almost as if we're being presented with a mythology where we represent where we recognize many of our own feelings, uh, but it's unlike nearly every other book I've, I've ever read. Calvino manages, in a way that Lightman does as well, to make you feel as a reader that you're almost as imaginative as he is. But the book is still, it's as light as a cloud and just as beautiful. It's transporting. So I highly recommend that to you and to your listeners. I love the sound of that. If someone had described that to me years ago, I would have already read it by now. (laughs) (laughs) I think you'll like it. And it has the same quality of the Lightman, where there are passages you can just go back to and open again, and they just attach themselves to elements of your experience. So I highly recommend it. That sounds wonderful. The third is a novel called Life, a User's Manual by Georges Parrish, French novel. I don't know this one. Uh, This was published in 1978, and it's about a building in Paris. You say how much you like eccentric structures. This is about an apartment building in Paris, and it goes in 99 chapters through every room but one in this apartment building, really constructed like a jigsaw puzzle that takes you through this building. And it reveals the life of Paris, a very intricate book with a strange and compelling narrative structure that's very rewarding. And it's playful in the way that Calvino and Lightman are, a little more ambitious in its scope. And I'm going to keep the description of that one uh, short because I want to get to a fourth book, which I think (laughs) you will really like after having listened to the podcast and read your book. 
And do you know a book called A Dresser of Sycamore Trees by Garrett Kaiser? No. Kaiser is a very interesting person. He was a high school English teacher, an Episcopal minister, a writer of real wisdom who's written books about anger and noise and odd subjects. But his work, to me, engages the kind of enduring dilemmas of human existence as well as the circumstantial trials of contemporary life. And one of his real gifts is for showing how those two things are entwined. A Dresser of Sycamore Trees, which came out in 1991, I think it was his first book. It's a memoir, and it's an account of how he became to be the lay minister of a small Episcopal parish, very small town in the northeast corner of Vermont. And while it's a book about the life of the Spirit, it's very much about the material world as well, about family and work and community conversations. And he, he grapples equally with the aggravations of life and the epiphanies of higher thoughts. And the writing honors the reader's experience as much as his own. As one early critic put it, it's a book about the extraordinary dailiness of grace. I think you'll find all of that interesting and his mind very interesting. One point he writes about his congregation, all I can hope to do is to remind them of what they know, to enliven what they know. That is to make it more accessible to their imaginations and thus to their faith. I really think going back to where we started about how reading can be life-enhancing, that kind of ministry that he's describing, that reminding people of what they know and enlivening what they know, is not unlike what we do when we recommend books to one another and to readers. In a way, that itself is a vocation. Because to me, the question of what to read next is the best prelude to even more important ones like who to be and how to live. And I find in Kaiser's work about his life, a similar sense of purpose and of struggling to engage others in meaningful conversations. And I think it's what you've done so well on this podcast and in your work and what I try to do in A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die. Well, thank you for that. You just hit on something that I love in my books that I didn't tell you about, which is I really admire it when an author can write beautifully and profoundly about everyday struggles and ordinary moments. Mm -hmm. I've always loved the kind of linguistic oddity that when we say, if we're writing a diary, that we keep a diary. Putting things in words allows us to keep experience in some way where we can go back to it and hold on to it and think about it. Uh, It's very important and so enriching to do that about what we spend most of our time doing, our mundane activities, not just our high-minded flights of fancy. And writers who can do that are, to me, among the most valuable. Jim, thank you so much for those recommendations. I can't wait to read them all. This House of Sky by Ivan Doig, Invisible Cities by Idolo Calvino, Life, a user's manual by the French author. George's Parish. Ah, see, that doesn't sound so hard when you do it. <laughs> I practiced before, so so it's it's P-E-R-E-C is his his last name. And a dresser of sycamore trees by Garrett Kaiser. I want to read all of those. I especially love the way you described a dresser of sycamore trees and the Ivan Doig. And I think since he's been on my radar the longest, I'm going to go with this house of sky. 
what really jumped out to me was the way you described how he used really beautiful language and put it to use describing common experiences. Well, I think you will, you will not be disappointed if you make that the first one to read. Jim, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Pleasure is entirely mine. I hope we can do it again sometime. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jim, and I'd love to hear what you think he and I should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 165, that's 165, and it's where you can see the full list of titles we talked about today. You can buy Jim's book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, wherever new books are sold, and learn more about it at www.1000booksToread.com. That's 1000books2read.com. Follow Jim on Instagram at 1000books2readbeforeyoudie and on Twitter at James Mustick. That's M U S T I C H at James Mustick. And if you liked hearing a fellow book lover recommend books to me, hop back to episode 62, which is over 100 episodes ago now, to hear me share my favorites and not so favorites and hear what should I read next listeners like you recommend books they think I will enjoy reading next. It's such a good one. Next week, I'm talking to Tiffany Patterson, a What Should I Read Next listener I met on book tour alongside oodles of her closest literature-loving friends. Here's a sneak peek. I knew that you'd said that you recruited a lot of friends to join you who'd brought their friends and you had a lot of non-readers suddenly showing up and reading books. And I thought this sounded amazing. But when people came through the signing line that night and they kept saying, I'm with the Lit Sock, I'm with the Lit Sock, <laughs> it took me 40 people to figure out, oh, that's literary society. Yes, we've, we've shortened it because I will not let them call it a book club. You sound very adamant about this. Yes, I am actually. If you're at literary society and you call it a book club, you get in trouble. What makes the distinction in your mind? We're not all reading the same book, which is what a book club typically is. We just go beyond that and we are a literary society and it just sounds so pretentious and better. (laughs) I just enjoy it very much. You have to say it with your eyebrow raised. (laughs) With a British accent would be even better, but most of us can't do that very well. So you're welcome to try if you'd like. (laughs) I'm not not going going to. I'm not going to try. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Make sure you are the first to know about What Should I Read Next news and events by signing up for our free weekly newsletter at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>